People use this term wear and tear, um, that their body's wearing out, that they played a lot of football growing up, or they overdid this and that and the other thing. And it sort of it sort of puts the body in this in this it's like a machine or a car. Like it wears out, right? It doesn't we're not giving it the credit that it deserves that it's actually it heals itself, right? It changes. Cars don't do that. Machines yeah. don't do that. We as human beings do that. We're highly resilient. And so if the person has that narrative that's even running subconsciously, it's going to be consequential for their movement, their pain, and their behavior, you know, not just their thoughts and feelings, but their behavior in life, the things they do and don't do. Welcome to This Thing Called Movement, brought to you by Evolna, hosted by Marie Janicek. beautiful humans and welcome to the 50th episode of the this thing called movement podcast it is such a joy and a pleasure to be back here and to be diving into the richness of the medium of movement which i fundamentally believe at all levels of my being that movement is magic and when we really allow ourselves to tap into the multidimensionality of movement, meaning explore not just what's happening physically, but mentally, emotionally, energetically, and even spiritually as we move our bodies, this is where we tap into the hidden magic of movement and its potential to change and shape so many aspects of our lives. And this podcast is devoted to that ephemeral nature of movement, to digging into some of these hidden, nuanced, and unseen aspects of movement and giving ourselves permission to drink them in, to play with them, and to really transform our relationship to our bodies and our lives as a result. And today's episode does a phenomenal job of helping us tap into a new awareness of our bodies. And the reason I'm so excited about this episode is because our central focus here, I feel, is one of the key components that everyone has experienced in relationship to their bodies, and that is pain. Now, pain is such a complex component of our relationship with our bodies. And I will say through my personal experience, through my experience as a coach and as a trainer and as an educator, it is also significantly misunderstood. And it's this misunderstanding of pain that separates us from the potential and the opportunity it holds for us. And there's so much wound into that word. I'm sure many of you, as you're hearing it, you're reflecting back on the limitations you felt as a result of pain, or even some of the limiting belief systems that run rampant in the fitness industry that, quite frankly, I don't think we should perpetuate anymore, namely, no pain, no gain. And the, today's episode, I'm really excited to bring on a guest who I hold in such high esteem, who I have so much love and appreciation for because the work he is doing is magnificent. It's so powerful. It's so needed. And I feel so honored that he was willing to take the time to sit down with me and to 
dig into the nuances of pain and share them with all of us. So without further ado, I'm really thrilled to introduce this episode featuring Charlie Merrill. Charlie Merrill is a physical therapist and the founder of Merrill Performance located in Boulder, Colorado. He has devoted over 20 years of his life to developing a synthesized treatment of the mind and body to support others in returning to a high level of performance, health, and vitality in their lives. In his practice, Charlie uniquely combines traditional hands-on manual therapy care with a novel mind-body approach, and this enables him to treat a wide range of clients, including some of the world's best runners, cyclists, rock climbers, and crossfitters. Now, Charlie himself, as a human being, loves the skill acquisition phase of any sport and continues to get involved in a multitude of methodologies, including dance, bike racing, skiing, golf, ultimate frisbee, and CrossFit, to name a few. He firmly believes that novelty, joy, fun, and play are the key components that should drive us to move. And I had the incredible pleasure of first meeting Charlie in the result of a really crucial moment in my life, which many people don't know about, but this last summer I was in a car accident. I was in the front passenger side of a vehicle. We got T-boned on the passenger side, and very luckily the car hit just behind where I was. All the safety features work, so I had nothing except maybe the wind knocked out of me and a little bruising on my side from the airbag. But I went to see Charlie afterwards just to make sure that nothing structurally was wrong. And once we assessed that from that structural standpoint, everything was okay, we had one of the most meaningful exchanges I've ever had in my life in the clinician and client setting. And it's so rare to step into a space where a clinician wants to know everything about you and is actively seeking to see all of who you are. And as a result of his invitation for me to consider all the aspects of my life that were currently active in relationship to my pain, he helped me not only understand more of what was going on in my life and informing the pain I was experiencing, but also in many ways was the catalyst that allowed me to make key life decisions that changed my life forever as a result. And I am eternally grateful to him for his guidance, for support, and his presence and love in that moment. And I'm so incredibly honored that Charlie agreed to come on for this episode and share his wisdom and his insights around pain. Because when it comes to movement and the relationship we have with our bodies, pain is universal to all of us. We've all experienced it. And the charge of it can be really intense and often feel so limiting, so debilitating, and and have us feeling like We don't have access to our bodies and can really diminish the tone and the energy of that relationship. But in my personal experience, both as a human being, as a coach, an educator, uh, a movement guide, I think pain is an incredible teacher. But 
it can only be as good of a teacher when we have an understanding of what it's actually trying to show us. And in this episode, Charlie does an incredible job of really expanding our understanding of what's actually happening within pain. And for me, a few key points that really dynamically changed my understanding of how to relate to pain were this biopsychosocial model of pain. The understanding that when our brain is registering pain in some way, it does not always mean there is tissue damage. And unfortunately, so many of us have that assumption about it. But when we're having pain, Charlie really helps unwind and unravel some of these hidden nuances of how pain is a message. And sometimes the message isn't actually about the physicality of your body. It's about these other factors, what's going on for you mentally, emotionally, socially, etc. Another piece of this episode I loved was the understanding of the correlation between pain and fear. And when we learn to see that correlation, it helps us sort of divest the assumption that pain is something that indicates something physically being wrong. It is highlighting a fear response that means there's some element of our life that is scaring us that we need to address. And then that way, pain can be a really useful messenger. And then finally, one of my favorite pieces of this conversation was how Charlie was able to demonstrate and highlight the fact that when we introduce novelty, when we introduce play and pleasure and fun, oftentimes the places that we're holding on to pain in our body actually disappear. And it is such a powerful way of demonstrating and exemplifying and embodying the fact that pain is not always an indication that something is wrong physically. So I walked away from this conversation feeling so inspired, feeling so empowered. And my deep desire and hope is that you are able to walk away from this conversation feeling some of those elements and energies as well. And so without further ado, I'm going to let this conversation speak for itself. I'm going to let Charlie flood us with his incredible wisdom, his insights, his love, his devotion, his joy. So go ahead and relax, sit back, and let these wonderful words wash over you. Charlie, what a treat to be here with you today, to be here in person with you today. I never get to do this, especially since the pandemic, and it just means so much to me to have you on with us. Of course. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for inviting me, and to get to be in person is definitely a treat. Yeah. So one of the things that I find so fascinating about your work, which you technically are a physical therapist, right? Or what is the official title you would use to describe yourself? I am trained as a licensed physical therapist. That is true. Um, Within that licensure, I've focused mostly on manual therapy for most of my career. So outpatient type treatments, think of dry needling, manipulation, fascial release, corrective exercise. And then as I went through my career, getting into functional movement through CrossFit and other avenues to bring more of like the real gym experience beyond the like boring sheets of PT exercises that you see that you Mm -hmm. think of when you think of PT. Mm -hmm. Um, So 
yeah, I'd say through my career, I've been a real synthesizer and uh, I don't recognize myself, I guess, strictly as a physical therapist anymore, but. Oh, I can totally relate to that. Having been in the world of personal training and sort of seeing so many limitations with that definition, while it does provide clarity, um, it also doesn't give an accurate representation for what it is I'm actually trying to do with people. Um, but on that note, something that I really love about your work is how you talk about pain. And I had the incredible pleasure of actually working with you in the client provider capacity uh, back in August when I came out of a unexpected car accident. Uh, I was in the passenger side of a vehicle when we got T-boned on the passenger side. Thankfully, the car hit right behind where I was sitting, so it could have been much, much worse, and the safety features all worked. Uh, but I did have some effects and some residual pain and sort of tightening responses in my body, and I came to see you for that. And from the moment I set foot into your space and the way you allowed me to bring all facets of my life into that session, you wanted to know what was happening for me emotionally, what was happening for me psychologically, what was going on in my career, basically all the factors that could have actually been communicating with my physicality at that moment and influencing whatever was going on, even in that acute pain response. Yeah, I, I think like getting, getting right to the core of like, how angry are you at your partner who was driving the car? Because of course you weren't in control of the situation, which often leads to a very different outcome, the driver versus the passenger in a car mm -hmm. accident. And most people have pain after a car accident. Um, the more severe the car accident is, the more likely that there's going to be some tissue damage or injury, you know, like straining things and, and muscles go into spasm. Um, but we, we know that the pain doesn't always correlate with, with tissue damage. So more minor car accidents, people can have a lot of pain. They can, their muscles can lock up. They won't be able to turn their head. They'll have headaches. Um, those symptoms are very real, but they're often not tied to anything actually having gotten injured. And the fear that results after a car accident, you know, you have to buy a new car, you have to deal with your insurance, um, anything from financial to relationship challenges that result, those things all play into people's pain experience. Mm. So let's get right into this topic because I know it's such a fundamental one for most people in relationship to their bodies. What do you see as the common misconceptions when it comes to pain and our body? Or if it's easier to start in this direction instead, what is fundamentally happening when we do experience pain in our bodies? Okay, those are two great, great questions. I might start with the second one first. So the old sort of Descartes model of pain is that we touch the fire and the pain signal goes up to our brain and we perceive that something hot touched our hand, right? We know now that it's actually backwards, that when we touch fire, there's information coming from our hand to our brain. But at that point, it's simply information. It's just heat. It's not pain yet. The brain's job is to receive that information and decide what to do with it. And of course, when you touch fire, your brain's pretty reliable at saying, hey, you should take your hand away. And it does that really quickly, right? So we've learned that very simply, the brain is in charge of our pain 100% of the time without exception. It's the executive that's making all the decisions about whether 
we're safe or whether we're in danger. And pain just happens to be a great output that the brain chooses to try to get our attention. Mm. Um, so probably the biggest misconception about pain is that it's associated with tissue damage. If you touch fire and burn your hand, you might have an injury to your skin, right? Um, but we know that for most people in pain, it's highly correlated with fear. Fear is actually a direct correlation between people's pain experience rather than injury and tissue damage. Hmm. So when fear has a much bigger part to play in our experience of pain, does previous experience and past conditioning influence us more in terms of what we're feeling pain-wise than the actual acute moment? Yes, for sure. And, you know, there, when you sprain your ankle, right, or when you get in a really bad car accident, um, the context isn't quite as important in those, those first few moments. I'm not going to say it's not important at all, but, you know, you hurt yourself. You got mm -hmm. an injury, right? Mm -hmm. um, now, if I've sprained my ankle 10 times in the past... I might either be really sensitive to that because I have fear that every time I do it, I'm getting worse, or I might be actually desensitized to it and just say, ah, there I go again, I sprained my ankle. I've done it a dozen mm. times, no big deal, right? So in that way, my past experience predicts my reaction to that thing that did actual potential damage to my body. Um, really commonly in my clinic, I see people that come in and let's say they have back pain. Mm. And one person um, has never had back pain before and they have a parent, let's say, who had surgery on their back or has struggled for many years with back pain, right? That person is going to have a, a strong emotional reaction, probably fear reaction to that back pain flare up because the first thing their brain's going to do is think, oh boy, I've seen what my dad's gone through, my mom's gone through, and now here I am on that same path. And mm. Is that going to be how I end up? And that mm. happens within, a, within seconds. It's mm -hmm. so fast. The way our past experiences influence, you know, through our context, influence our, our, the brain's output, how mm. much pain it chooses to produce and what it chooses to do to our body. Mm. Does that make sense? Whereas someone who doesn't have that history and just has back pain, they may not have as much fear because they don't have that story. They don't have that life experience to pair with it. Yeah, I actually see this happening even outside the realm of pain, but even in terms of body functionality as people age. There are so many pervasive stories around, especially age, and then pain or like past injury influencing and limiting full functional performance and capacity. And I see that those stories fundamentally get in the way and stall or stop someone's ability to heal far more than like what may functionally be going on within the body. And for me as a, as a, trainer like is that that being my licensing it was one of the most frustrating pieces of my work with people when people would go get diagnosed by medical doctors osteopaths who don't really have a lot of experience with the body in motion who are also responding to a lot of these conditioned beliefs around the body degrading and how once one thing falters it cannot fully come back yeah, I, I mean, you and I hear this all the time. People use this term wear and tear, um, that their body's wearing out, that they played a lot of football growing up, or they overdid this and that and the other thing. And it sort of, it sort of puts the body in this, in this 
it's like a machine or a car, like it wears out, right? It doesn't, we're not giving it the credit that it deserves that it's actually, it heals itself, right? It changes. Cars don't do that. Machines yeah. don't do that. We as human beings do that. We're highly resilient. And so if the person has that narrative that's even running subconsciously, it's going to be consequential for their movement, their pain, and their behavior, you know, not just their thoughts and feelings, but their behavior in life, the things they do and don't do. And for a lot of those people, the world gets really small and that's sad. And yeah. for, you know, you and I are like, you know, we, we want people to expand their movement vocabulary mm. and to, 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 to use their body the way it's meant to be moving. So, yeah. And I have also noticed that pain and, and I love that example that you used right off the get go of the difference between someone who's maybe had a history of back pain versus someone who's witnessed someone else going through their own experience of back pain and how in many ways those can function very similarly to one another and how they inhibit that person's response to being able to reintegrate and get their body back to being fully operational again. So in your experience, which factors do you feel limit people the most when it comes to bringing their body back into full functionality, whether you're talking chronic injuries or acute? Yeah. Um, well, let, me, let me start with the acute versus chronic because there's a misconception that acute pain always means tissue damage. That mm. acute, acute pain for listeners means that the pain sort of is newer or just started. Um, sometimes that's because there was an injury, but the word acute actually is a time domain. It doesn't actually presuppose a mechanism, right? So a lot of the people that come into my practice, they just started to have pain. Mm. I almost have to watch myself because I'm, I'm tempted to say they just got injured, right? But they just started to have pain, which doesn't mean that they injured something, mm. right? There's this assumption that chronic pain which is defined as pain going on longer than three months or six months, depending on the, what you're reading, that that is somehow in a different category. And we're starting to understand we can more reliably say that anything that got injured, if anything was injured at all, is now healed. And we can start thinking about it through this biopsychosocial lens, which mm -hmm. is the body, the bio, the psychology, and the social realities of that individual, like mm. what they see their parents going through or what people are telling them about their body, doctors and whatever. So um, I think it's important to know that a lot of people with acute pain, pain that just started, are not injured. Um, especially if the pain started in the absence of some really obvious mechanism of injury, right? Mm -hmm. Some obvious thing. Um, and again, it's, it, there can be a gray area because some people will say, well, my back pain started when I was deadlifting, right? And they may be quick to link that that deadlift is why their back pain started. Mm -hmm. But I can tell you story after story about these other psychosocial factors that parallel that deadlift workout that are actually the triggers for that back pain to start. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, once the brain makes this assumption that deadlifting is dangerous or the doctor says that deadlifting is dangerous, then that's paired in the brain, right, in the, in the limbic system. And it continues to run on repeat. That belief stays put, mm. right? And so the, the, when I'm evaluating people, it doesn't matter to me how long their pain has been going on necessarily. 
because um, that doesn't always predict injury or no injury. Mm. And if you're looking at things through a biopsychosocial lens, um, it's not to minimize the body because that's important. And your listeners have all had a lot of education and training. They have a lot of knowledge in that part. It's making space and holding with equal regard the psychology and the social realities. And I'll just tell you, my experience is that those things weigh far more heavily on people's pain experience and their movement quality and their joy of movement, all these things that you know, right? Yeah. Far more heavily than the bio body stuff does. Mm. So in some ways, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but this is sort of what I gleaned from that nugget, which got me really excited, um, is that what is going on in our life is reflected through our body. And pain is a message that there is something that needs to be attended to, whether it's happening with the body, but usually it's actually these other factors that are weighing on us and burdening us. Mm. I'm glad you said that because often people talk about chronic pain, especially as being a, like a misfiring or a mistake or some, something that's gone haywire, right? And I, I consistently try to help people relate to pain as a helpful message Mm. Right, uh, pain is a helpful message from the brain that the organism is not safe, that something is not okay, mm-hmm. and sometimes it means that the body's damaged and there's an injury or a fracture or something's torn. Right, sometimes that 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 does happen, and that's an appropriate output by the brain. I would say most of the time, the output of pain is is not telling you that something's wrong with your body, but it's trying to get your attention that something's not okay in your life, as you said. And that's also a helpful message if you can make that connection and start to recognize that you need to set a boundary or you need to make a change or you're in the middle of a change and you're scared Mm. and that's okay. Mm -hmm. Or there's emotion coming up and emotions are scary too, right? And the brain knows that when grief or sadness or anger is threatening to well up, that it might use pain as a distraction to keep us from looking at those emotions because they just feel too big. They just feel too scary. Mm. Um, So some of the work then is helping athletes, helping movers be able to um, use pain, almost thank it, use pain as a helpful message to say, thank you for letting me know that I'm feeling grief or I'm feeling anger or I'm feeling sadness. And then once you make that connection, what a cool way to be able to be with that you know, moving your body is such a cool way to be able to, to be with that and express that in a familiar way. Hopefully that feels safe. That brings some safety back. Yeah. I'm thinking about sort of the double edged sword of using movement to connect with emotion and how there is sort of this razor's edge where we can use movement as an entry point to be with our emotions in a safe way and to feel them. But that isn't always the case for everyone in every circumstance. Sometimes you're using movement to avoid feeling an emotion in some ways, trying to like shut it down or pivot or like sweep it under the rug and and just feel euphoric or feel a sense of relief in those moments. You just defined my 20s, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's something I've been through many times as well. My teens, it started as early then. But um how do we toe that line of, of actually using pain signal to our advantage, um, using it as this mechanism that can allow us to be in touch with 
what is it? The biosocial, biopsychosocial, biopsychosocial model. model. Yeah. Uh-huh. How? What? What are some tools and tips that you use both for yourself and with the people you work with to help us ex- uh, experience and put to use this level of discernment? Man, that's a big question. I like that you pointed out that that this can kind of go both ways, right? Like we can go from a bottom-up approach mm. and use movement to be able to connect with and tune in to our emotions, right? Um, I've been on runs before where I've just broken down crying in the middle of the run. I didn't realize that I had big feelings, mm. right? And then we can also go the other way where we're we're looking at the psychosocial variables, identifying emotions, making connections, and then turning to movement to be able to process those sort of secondarily. So I I like movement because it can go both directions. Um, You know, I'll speak from my personal experience. Um, we, We think sometimes that when we're stressed or anxious or overwhelmed, that we can go out and we can burn that off through exercise, right? That I, if I could just get a workout in, this run, this ride, uh, and, and we do, we feel better after that, right? Mm. The challenge is that feeling better is temporary because we, we've just distracted ourselves from attending to the fact that something really important is going on. So we're not actually burning off anger, we're not burning off sadness, we're not burning off fear. Um, at some point it's gonna come back and we're gonna have to face it. Or we're gonna go out and exercise again and again and again and again until maybe we have pain and then the doctor, our trainer says, well, you've overdone it. You have an overuse injury, mm. right? Because um, you train too much. Mm-hmm. When really the message is, hey, you're not paying attention to what's going on in your life. Mm-hmm. You need to set a boundary. You mm-hmm. need to change something in your relationship or you need to, to, to leave your job. Um, until we really make that connection and acknowledge and recognize those emotions and label them, make space for them, they just stick around and we keep having to use that coping strategy. Now, I don't want to make exercise sound like it's a bad coping strategy because it's one of my favorites. Mine right? too. <laughs> but we want to, and, and it, I always encourage athletes to have multiple strategies when they're feeling big emotions aside mm-hmm. from exercise because what the brain will do is it'll take exercise away and it'll say, now what are you going to do? Ooh. Right? And that's just like <laughs> totally a vicious cycle because then there's more fear. But your brain's clever. It's trying to keep you safe. It knows that's not a good strategy. Your brain knows what's best for you. Mm. It knows that exercise is is not a great strategy if it's your only strategy. But that said, um, if you can put some intentionality into why you're going out, like if I can say, I'm feeling really angry about what's going on in my life. I'm going to my gym and I'm going to set my workout up around anger and I'm going to get my slam ball, Mm -hmm. right? And I'm going to get my barbell and I'm going to throw it on the ground aggressively and I'm going to clench my fist and I'm going to scream and I'm going to emote and I'm going to let that out as I do this workout, right? I'm focused on the thing. I've made the connection to the thing in my life that's bringing up that anger and I'm actively processing it mm. using movement, right? So it's, it, it's, it's just like when you're teaching someone how to squat. If you give them intention in how you want them to squat, they're going to move differently, Right. Mm. If you give someone intention about what emotion they're trying to process, that workout is going to be much more effective at helping them move through that than just blindly going out and saying, I'm just going to go ride. Yeah, I love that analogy and that connection, especially with anger. Um, And this for me is why I'm so vehement about people playing around with movement variability. And as you 
mentioned earlier, having multiple tools in your toolbox, even just from a movement standpoint, because the way you choose to, this idea of using movement to process and integrate an emotion is I feel like one, I feel like it's one that we're not actively using enough, period. Mm -hmm. And when you start to think about actively using it in a more intentional way, you want to be able to speak to all of those different nuances of each emotion along the scale. So what you do when you're angry should look very different from when you are feeling heartbroken and sad or when you are feeling frustrated and scared. The body will want to process those emotions in very different tones, very different experiences. And for me, this was the greatest gift dance gave me growing up. This was what I fundamentally loved about dance. It wasn't, you know, learning how to do fancy tricks and spins and being an incredible athlete that could do all these acrobatics. It was that for me, the medium of dance was the one movement space that so clearly spoke to emotion in our bodies and the full range of emotion Mm -hmm. and especially improvisation, which ironically growing up, many kids I danced alongside hated But for me, that was my favorite space because that space allowed you to go directly into whatever emotional channel you needed to be in and play around with whatever movement matched that emotional signature in the moment. And for me, it was always a relief. It was a catharsis. It was an integration. It's where I got new ideas. It's where I established a stronger sense of self. And as I moved from dance into the fitness world and started working with people as a trainer, this, this was the most frustrating piece for me in training pedagogy and education is that we did not talk about the emotional side of things. And in forgetting that, you can sometimes actually be leading through someone through a workout that is wrong for them just because it's on the program it's on the micro scale of the macro scale to lead them on their goals but if they're coming in dejected and sad that's not the day to be pushing the deadlifts right that's a day where your body is asking for something fundamentally different and so much of how we think about modern fitness does not speak to this nuance and this shift it's true. There's so that that brought up so much for me. I don't even know where to start. I think the first thing that came to me was the difference between movement and exercise. Mm. And I like to 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 help people understand that those can be very different things because exercise is regimented, it's strict, and based on rules and should and right, it has a totally different feel from just moving your body. And what you're saying is, dance is not only really diverse and you can do it in many ways, but I think it's it's primal, different from other types of exercise um, and that you can express, you can do so many different types of dance and it's not constrained by the rules of, of modern exercise. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, And I use exercise in my practice because our nervous systems crave novelty Mm -hmm. and most people as they get older, stop dancing. They're trying to exercise and they're trying to play tennis and run and cycle but when I, when I try to interrupt their sort of thought process around being active when they're trying to recover from pain, dance is an amazing way to interrupt that cognitive dissonance. Mm-hmm. Because most people are like, oh, I never thought of that. Of course, I love to dance. Like it just it seems like everybody just resonates with dance, doesn't it? Yeah, I think dancing is akin to breathing. It's akin to eating. It's like part of being human 
And for whatever reason, since dance became a profession, and since our day and age sort of focal points shifted from movement for survival to tech for survival, so there's been this interesting split where dance is an inherent part of us, but we have lost our connection to expressing it, especially for the general public. Mm. And then when you have the professionalization of it, then it creates the fear of looking stupid or getting it wrong, right? Not having mm. enough practice, not having the qualification to dance. And so then you, you get this even deeper undercurrent that pulls people away from something that I believe is fundamental to every human being on this earth. And when you don't have that connection to that authentic creative expression of just moving your body in ways that feel good, when you're worried about looking good or fitting in, and then you're, you've already sort of lost that ability to have that inner movement dialogue with yourself and you're trying to step back in, it's uncomfortable, it's scary. Mm -hmm. And so then it's just really difficult to access. And I, that's a lot of what I was trying to speak to with Ivolna. I was like, let's, let's make this simple. Let's make it not about steps. Let's just <laughs> focus on feeling and let's craft a space where you're given permission to be weird, to be a little wild, to be strange, to move in unconventional ways, but to start finding those internal pathways of noticing when something feels good mm -hmm. and give yourself that gift of getting through the sticking points and the discomfort that is inevitable when you start anything new mm -hmm. until you start getting the positive feedback loop engaged and you can begin to really embolden and strengthen that instead. Yeah, you're building a new habit. You know what I do when I when I have people that I want them to try to dance and they don't have a lot of experience or they have this thing like, well, that's for, kid, that's for young people, I don't do that anymore. I say, I want you to listen to the fitness marshal. I want you to go home and I want you to look up the fitness marshal on YouTube and find a song that resonates for you. It's five minutes and just do it. And people just love it. Like universally, however you tap into it, people just are like, I'm so, that was so fun. I'm so mm. glad you recommended that. You know? I've never heard of the fitness marshal. Uh, I, you have to go look up the fitness marshal now. Oh, yeah. yeah. He's, a, like... he's a phenomenon. And not only do I love how accessible it is, um, he's just a joyful human being. Mm. And so from like a, um, from a mirror neuron perspective, you know, spending time with someone that has that energy is also really therapeutic. Mm. Just like a good coach or a good trainer or a good instructor, if they're bringing positivity and hope and they're reducing fear and they're modeling joy, that's going to rub off on their students, mm. right? The opposite is also true. And we know there are a lot of people in the fitness world, yoga and the gym with dance that have a lot of their own fear around movement and they put rules and guardrails around it. Be careful, don't squat too deep, you know, don't do that movement, you know, that really hurts a lot of people. And they have the, they have the best intention, right, of trying to keep people safe. But now, now that you know that fear is a direct correlate with pain, um, I'll speak for myself, I have to check myself every day with how I say things, what I say, and I'm getting better at it, but how I, how I relate to, to what people say and bring up in my clinic. Yeah, when we were talking about fear really being the stronger component of what creates a pain response, um, something I was thinking about was, and I've really just been observing in the last few months as I work with people here and there and try and give them some advice on how to negotiate this 
pain response or you know find more coherence in their body and this channel that there seems to be this pervasive sense of fragility of the body and that fear of not doing the wrong thing not breaking it not disadvantaging it further is so strong and in some ways continues to expand that limiting belief and make the fear so much worse which then compounds on the pain response as well and i watch people go through movements that are inherently good for them and like see the fear starting to seep in in that uncertainty and that distrust of their body because so much of the pervasive discourse around the body is wrapped in its fragility not in its healing capacity not in its consciousness its ability to integrate and in many ways like persevere beyond all sorts of limitations that we exact on ourselves that we don't even know of yeah and the medical system doesn't do that well the biomedical model the strict biomedical model um, doesn't really support that I, i just had a client earlier today who described himself as a glass cannon and he's a he's a you know he he he's super fit muscular strong you saw him on the street you'd be like wow that guy is an athlete he's tall he's he looks confident right but in in his mind he feels like a glass cannon like he if he does too much he could do all this damage to his body right if he fires too hard he's going to break into pieces and that's because he's learned that um, over the course of time from clinicians from the medical system. And what's so interesting about talking to people in these situations, in this case, he's been in pain for over six years. And like a lot of people accumulated different different symptoms. And we know that the more symptoms people accumulate, the more likely it's due to a sensitive nervous system. And the less likely it's due to 12 different medical problems, right? Yeah. So that's already a clue. But I think what's so cool, um, when we went back and unpacked his history of, hey, when did your shoulder pain start? When did your knee pain start? When did your back pain start? In every situation, he could describe to me what was going on for him in his life at that point. And for all three of those situations, there was a significant life event, not just like everyday COVID stress and my kids and my relationship. It's like someone, a parent passing away or, um, you know, in in grad school, trying to decide if I'm going to get married or not. Like Mm -hmm. these are, these are big life events or life changing decision points. Right. And, and people would never make that connection until you start to ask them. So in the absence of, a, of an injury, of a mechanism of injury, um, the next step is, well, what was going on in your life at that time, right? And people usually sit back in their chair and think about it, and they'll often say, well, I don't know if that's connected, but this is what was going on. And it's amazing how challenging it is for the brain to make that connection between the psychological and the physical. Mm. Um, But at the end of the day, physical sensations are interchangeable with emotional sensations. They're really the same thing. They're just showing up in different ways. So, so my goal with him is to turn him into an iron cannon. You know, he, 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 he's going to over time through moving his body and proving it to himself understand that he's durable and Mm. he's anti-fragile and he's robust and he's resilient and he's an amazing healer and all those stories that he's carried for the last six years that he picked up from his environment are all going to fall away Mm. 
just as clinicians, the more we can bust myths around stuff that isn't true, the better. Yeah. Something I'm also thinking about hearing you talk about this story is the potential for being like being able to really have appreciation for all the subtle nuances of sensations and emotions we feel and to be more willing to have a fluid approach in understanding what those messages are telling us, whether it is about our physicality or where we are mentally and emotionally in that moment. And, and being able to use all that information to give us a clearer and more direct sense of what it is we actually need in the moment, which then completely changes our timeline in getting to even some of these specific results we're hoping to achieve with our body. Yeah. And this is something I've played around with a lot, learning how to slow down in the moments when my body and my brain are calling for mm. it and trusting in that response versus overriding it and, ju- and just be like, no, 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 I need to stay on schedule. Mm-hmm. Because like the, the physics of it, the mechanics of it, if I don't stress my tissue this much, I will not improve. Mm. And, and discovering that by learning to appreciate what's going on physically or mentally for me and listen to that and just trust those signals and trust in the natural ebbs and flows that are going on there, that fundamentally is going to change my, even my structural physical resiliency in ways I can't even comprehend mm. through my mind. Yeah. Interesting. I, as just, as you were saying that, I was thinking of a client this morning who was asking me like, you know, how much should I, he's getting back into running and cycling and trying to do this graded exposure of, you know, ramping up in a smart way. And, um, he surprises himself every time he does like takes a big leap and he's successful with it. It's great. Right. But he was asking me to put some rules, some structure around, like, should I run every other day? How much should I run? I was like, why don't we do this? Why don't you decide when you get up in the morning, what you feel like you want to do? Why don't you just decide based on how you feel in your body? And I want you to start to learn to listen to that, you know, get up and say, no, I had a two mile run planned. Is that what I want to do? Yes. Okay, great. Do it. Or maybe, no, maybe that's not what I want to do. Maybe I want to go to the gym or maybe I want to dance or maybe I want to just take the day off. Mm. What a concept, right? Mm -hmm. Like listening to our true self and our our intuition around that. And um, you're right. He's going to, through that process, find much more success. He's going to gain more fitness. He's going to learn a lot about himself in the process. And um, hopefully it'll be a new habit for him you know, that he can rely on in the future. Let go, let the structure fall away a little bit and start moving with joy instead. Yeah, moving with joy instead. It sounds so beautiful, but I wonder how many people actually have experienced that and trust that. Um, Because even people who found something that they love, I think with a lot of the pervasive conditioned beliefs we have around body, fragility, fear, and then how, what pain means in relationship to our bodies, like we've been talking about, just fundamentally changes even sort of the love story people can have with a certain medium of movement. I mean, getting acquainted with the rock climbing community in the last few months, it's really interesting to see how many rock climbers, it's like climbing or die, you know, if, if you're not climbing, you're dying. And and how in some ways the thing that they love can then also 
turn on them in in a really vicious way, especially because some of these issues of pain and fear and and sort of the belief systems that hold them in that place of not actually having a more honest and integrated relationship with their body or what's going on in the bio-psycho-social sphere. Yeah, that, that's such a great observation. This could be a whole podcast episode about <laughs> like attachment to sport or attachment to identity, right? Mm. I race cyclocross, um, which for those of you who don't know is a very strange bike racing discipline. Um, some people have called it the cocaine of bike racing because it distills down all the things from all the other types into this one high intensity format in bad weather in the fall and you're carrying your bike. Anyway, it's weird. I loved it for so many years. And I, and I realized about myself, I love the skill acquisition phase of any thing, any new thing. And so my brain like needs turnover, it needs novelty. Mm. So I did this for about six years. I loved it. I was making progress. I made great connections. I was having fun. I was getting better. Great for my self-esteem, right? Um, I learned a ton. And then it got to the point where it switched on me. And I realized that I wasn't doing it for the same reasons that I was doing it before. It wasn't joyful anymore. It took on expectations I needed to perform. When I didn't perform, I was hard on myself. And it switched from being something really healthy in my life to something that I really had to look at and say, do I still want to do this or not? And at that point after many years it was part of my identity and I had a lot of friends that did it and I was very attached to it right and it took a lot of real sort of you know introspection to say what am I going to do with this do I do I need to stop riding bikes do I not want to race anymore am I okay with that that was really hard yeah you know and I, I had to be really honest with myself that I needed to put it away and then see if I came back to it at some point and, mm. and I did some other things um after I realized how much I was suffering through it, I did some other things that brought all this joy back into my life, you know, that novelty. And now there's a new skill to master. That's amazing. I realized that I love that. I love that I'm getting better phase. It's so yeah. much fun. Well, I love talking about this association with identity in certain movement forms and the trap that that can create. Um, and that story in particular, starting something and, and truly having this joyous, exuberant love for it, and then turning around one day and be like, wait, this isn't, this turn, this change, it's mutated. Because um, something I always talk about is like the importance of our relationship to movement. Movement is a relationship. It's a relationship with ourselves. And if we look at the metaphor of how we would think about a significant other or a spouse and what our ideal of that relationship looks like, it requires sort of checking in. It requires being willing to evolve. It requires change. And it sometimes requires shifting certain things. And this is especially true for movement. And it's especially true for the tiny, um, I guess, how do I, how do I explain this? I'm seeing it visually, but where exercise lies within the movement sphere, how we exercise can also change within the movement sphere. And if we are seeing movement as a relationship to ourselves and choosing to make decisions that maximize that sense of joy, that maximize a sense of novelty and learning and playfulness, curiosity and fun, we have to also leave space for 
allowing that change to happen and recognizing that sometimes something that was fun may not be fun at a certain point. Does it mean that movement is no longer fun? No, it just is an opportunity to discover and explore another facet of our body, of ourself and, and how we experience the world. And sometimes when you were sharing your story, I immediately thought of my relationship with dance, which was, yes, initially a joyful point. And as I started to professionalize it, it mutated for me into a place where I, I could not bring myself to dance because it just never felt joyful. And having that separation from that joy made it too painful. So I took years away and now I actually took my first real dance class about four months ago in I think eight years. And I had a completely different sense of myself in that environment that I've actually never had before. One that was stripped of all the expectation, the sense of needing to prove myself. And a lot of that is it was a different environment than I had been dancing in, but fundamentally what changed was me. And it was that ability to step out of the thing I loved, allow myself to explore a bunch of other things, and also recognize when that impulse came back to step in and play again and to be willing to meet it and to meet it with fresh eyes and fresh body, yeah. I guess. It's wonder <laughs> wonderful that you could come back and refine that, you know, and rediscover how like have a new relationship with that. I think that that the, the thing the thing that you and I see with athletes is that they either hit a point where they have pain and or they have declining performance, mm. right? And I had both of those mm. with my bike racing. And on the surface, you can see how that gets hijacked into fear really quickly that I'm, I'm not the same as I was 10 years ago or my body's breaking down. But really what it meant was I needed to, to take a break and put it away. Mm. And thank you, brain, for you know, for giving me that helpful message so that I could recognize that, mm. right? It's working in the background subconsciously saying, is this safe? Does this human being still need this? Mm. And it's making those decisions to protect us. And it, most athletes, you know, if you mention this to them in the moment, you know, they're so attached to the thing. There's much identity wrapped up in it that it's hard for them to see it. But in hindsight, it's much easier to step back and look back and say, oh yeah, I was, I was really doing that. I got to the point where I was doing that for the wrong reasons and it wasn't fun anymore and no wonder mm. I had back pain or knee pain or these overuse injuries that kept coming and going and plaguing me off and on over the course of time. No wonder my race results weren't coming in. No wonder my performance was, was struggling. And I think it's probably a good time to say that those things are all real, right? Like my power output on the bike was less, yeah. right? My race times, my running times were slower. Um, your fluidity of movement as a dancer you know, you might show up as being a little more rigid and not as relaxed in your body. Like those changes are real, just like all pain is real. And we always run the risk of talking about the biopsychosocial model, talking about psychology and social realities and thoughts and feelings as though somehow that pain is not real, mm. right? Just like the physiological changes that go along with this are real. All pain is real. It's the same pain. It's the mm. same output, it just is not due to a overused tissue damage problem, but mm. simply due to a brain and nervous system that is, um, is scared. Yeah, I that I really appreciate that message, and it's one I'm letting sink in deeply. That idea of all pain is real, but it's not necessarily coming from the singular entry point we like to associate with, like you mentioned, tissue damage. Um, 
But it, it, but what it is speaking to is like, what other pain are you normalizing all the time? And, and just allowing to progress and not giving time to address and, and think about and shift in the ways that are needed. And you've mentioned this a few times today, how a lot of what you try and impress upon people is that pain in some ways is a friend and it's, it's something to be embraced. So what are some tips or like things that you help or like, I guess tips would be the best word. What are some of your tips and tricks for being able to create more of this positive relationship with pain in the sense of embracing what it has to say mm. and not necessarily shoving it into one corner or shoving it into a box? Yeah, I think it's important to, to, to also probably recognize at this point that um, a lot of people arrive in my office and in your practice having heard a lot of things right? They, they, the doctor um, invariably has maybe looked at an MRI or has done some diagnostic workup. Um, they, people have been told they don't move well, their glutes are shut down, their alignment's not great, they're weak, they're inflexible, right? These messages are so sticky and it's hard to believe that they're not true. Mm. And so people invariably show up with a lot of stories and a lot of really sticky messages that create a barrier to them trusting that pain is a helpful message because to them pain is a torn meniscus in the knee or it's a labral tear in the hip or it's a degeneration in the low back. It's a problem. It's a problem. It's a body injury. And so that barrier is usually the first step to people moving in this new direction, right? It's such a, such a huge barrier, especially when people have seen multiple clinicians Mm. that have done things to increase fear. So there's sort of a psychoeducation component up front, depending on where that person is stuck. Maybe it's the MRI scan, right? We need to talk about the MRI research in the last decade uh, and the fact that the MRI is really good at seeing tissue, but it has absolutely no predictive quality in terms of who's going to have pain and who's not going to have pain, mm-hmm. right? Everybody in their 50s has degenerative change in their spine. Most people have disc bulges. Mm-hmm. Most people have labral tears in their shoulder or their hip. If you MRI their painful hip and you see a labral tear, the chances they have the same labral tear on the pain-free side are extremely high, right? Mm-hmm. So we're seeing this sort of like false positive with MRI scan and this quick assumption that that's why people are in pain, right? Mm-hmm. So removing that barrier is the first step. And that is a hard step for oh, a lot of people. Yeah. It's so hard. Yeah. Um, so, for, so after that point, there's like this evidence gathering detective work of trying to, to, to build a case for safety, right? And these are some of the things we've talked about. One is, was there an, an obvious injury when your pain started? Mm. Yes or no? A lot of people answer no to that question. If there was an injury, has it been three months? Have you had enough time to heal? Because we know healing is linear. It's predictable. It's reliable. Mm -hmm. And we can trust that, right? Mm -hmm. Our bodies heal. We're not a car. Mm -hmm. Been longer than three months. Even if you had an injury, you're probably not dealing with tissue damage anymore. Mm -hmm. Was there a stressful life event when the pain started, right? Mm -hmm. Are there fear thoughts and catastrophizing, we call it. Are people dropping into this anxiety response? Is there a fear around loss of identity? Are those things present, right? Mm. Um, have you had this pain before? Is it, is it showing up again as your brain's way 
to try to bring that neural pathway back in to try to get your attention again, mm -hmm. right? Because that's going to predict something. Do you have fear that you're a parent has that thing and you you fear that you're going to go down the same route these are just fear thoughts mm -hmm. that's all part of collecting evidence one of my favorite things to talk about is symptom behavior because this is where the rubber meets the road on deciding do you have a structural tissue damage problem or can we leave that put that aside and move on in this new way looking through this new lens and for athletes these are things like well i feel okay when i dance but i feel worse afterwards or the next day or two days later. That's a really common one. Mm -hmm. Or I feel worse in the morning or I'm not sleeping well, but then when I get moving, I feel better, mm -hmm. right? Um, there's a long list. It could be my pain gets worse when I'm stressed. My pain gets worse when I'm thinking about it or talking about it. My symptoms get better when I'm on vacation or when I'm distracted mm -hmm. or when it's the weekend, right? Yeah. Or, you know, my ride today was really not great, but then my ride a couple days ago, I felt super good. You know, well, who were you with? Mm -hmm. What was the day like? Were you with people you were stoked about? Were you judging yourself for being slower than everybody else, right? Those are the psychosocial factors that start to make the symptom behavior really inconsistent. Mm. And those symptom behaviors are what we really rely on um, to help continue to build this case mm. for safety. Mm. Um, and there are many other sort of clinical tests and variables we could talk about, but those are sort of the big ones that end up leading most people to understand that they're okay, mm. that they don't have an injury, even though they have pain that's very real. Mm -hmm. That's, for me, I remember that was the big one working with you was you mapping out and helping me to build that sense of safety and to see this trust of safety in my body because of the erratic symptoms, right? And in many ways, and I already have a very intimate relationship with the psychosomatic relationship of pain. I'm always, whenever somebody starts like taking me down that road, I get really excited because it's one that I'm particularly obsessed with. And, but seeing that, like from a logical perspective, my pain should have been showing up in so many other areas than it actually was. Because we also talked about pain that was going on in my hip. And it was only happening when I was going on meditation walks. But I would go rock climbing, I'd go dancing, I'd go lifting, I'd go hiking and do all these other things and have no pain. So there was, there was obviously a message there. And it was such a helpful moment for me to be able to pause and make that connection and to especially have a professional that gives you permission to make that connection. But I love what you said about like the steps it takes to even begin piecing this together in a way that is applicable for people, especially when we have all these different industries and systems in place that work against that. And that's a really, and so I guess my question is, where do we go from here? How do we begin negotiating this to make it better and more accessible for people? Yeah, it's a great question. It definitely feels like swimming upstream sometimes. I think, I think you know, th this research, this information has been around for two decades. Hmm. So none of this is new. None of this is just my opinion, right? This is well-documented, well-researched. There's lots of evidence about this, yet we're swimming upstream because we have this this leftover narrative that's 20 years old, mm. right? These old stories. And so 
you know, you and I are both working in lots of different ways to try to change that narrative, everything from teaching people in our practices to making podcasts to trying to show up on social media to start to give an alternative narrative to the move use of the world, right? To these fitness people that are continuing to drive home this old narrative of the body and the biomechanics um, that's just not helpful mm. most of the time, mm-hmm. you know, at least not as a standalone. Um, and um, I'm working with a startup right now, if, if I can plug that just for a second, called Go for it. Lynn Health spelled L-I-N dot health. And we're looking to sort of share this model uh, and make it accessible to everybody, to as many people as we can. And I really feel strongly this is going to start from a groundswell of people, probably Mm -hmm. not the healthcare community at this point Mm because there's a lot wrapped up in MRI machines and the medical industrial complex, you know, Mm -hmm. is, is, is really necessary and important some of the time mm-hmm. um, but that that thing's running like a machine mm-hmm. and it's going to be hard to interrupt it so I think mm-hmm. it's going to be demand from the public mm-hmm. and people understanding this in a new way that's really going to create that change mm-hmm. and this startup um, I'm hoping is going to give more people access to this good information that's been sitting right in front of us for the mm-hmm. last 20 years so what is the actual let's, let's dive in what's the actual mechanism of the startup is it an educational platform is it an experiential one how does um, it how does it work yeah yes the idea is that it's sort of a hub where people can come in and they can tell their pain story or they mm. can engage in, and share information about their medical history and then through a combination of psychoeducation um, meeting with clinicians that can help give a second opinion or weigh in based on these new rules, being paired with a coach, being connected with other technologies for anxiety or for mindfulness or for movement, uh, for sleep, connect with these other apps that already exist to get the support they need. It's almost like a multidisciplinary clinic that you can access on your computer or on your Mm -hmm. phone. Mm -hmm. And um, it's customized to whatever the person needs. And because Mm -hmm. there's a lot, there's a synchronous, an asynchronous coaching component People have someone walking with them, right, on this journey, Mm -hmm. helping them build evidence and feel safe and make connections all along the way. Mm. And um, so, yes, it's all of those things. And that's the vision is to is to try to bring it to everybody with with as few barriers as possible. Mm. Yeah, I I also. I think like the stories are such a powerful way of changing belief systems. So having a place where people can come and share their stories and have their stories be heard, um, even witness other people changing their stories and changing the dialogue around this is so powerful. Uh, That's why I think the conversations like this are really powerful and why I even opted to make these public to people because I was having so many mind altering and like life-changing conversations with so many beautiful humans some of whom are my friends some of whom are the professionals I get to work with and sort of realized more people need to be privy to these so how how do I make these public thank you (laughs) thank you for doing that thank you for doing that more voices the more voices the better I can't tell you how how beautiful and meaningful it is to liberate someone from their old story and like it, it gets me like anxious like shaking excited and also like I want to cry at the same time do you know 
because the difference before and after is, is just so poignant. It's so incredible. And I just, I want, I want more people to experience that and to get back to dancing yeah. with you and with the fitness marshal and with yeah. me and we all, let's just all get together and dance together. Yeah. We need to do that. <laughs> well, actually on that note, I think a lovely way to wrap things up here today for this conversation, um, would be with like, uh, actually you have a couple of options, a couple of ways we can mm-hmm. direct choose this. your own adventure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, either like sharing a revelation that you've more recently had that feels really powerful and resonant for you in your work or a story of that you got to witness whether it was one of your personal stories or someone you've gotten to work with that has also left its mark on you in a powerful way oh man you're going to put me on the spot here do you want to share one first while I think about it oh a, a personal revelation I mean I'm just I'm just having this revelation about creating a safe space to be able to embrace our pain and the several steps you outlined that need to be in place to do that. Um, and, the, and the thought that I had as you were talking about the MRIs was how so much of Western medicine, like especially medical medicine when it comes to the body, is all snapshots, right? MRIs mm-hmm. are a momentary snapshot And for me as a movement professional, this is like my biggest frustration is seeing that image snapshot is a a blip, it's a second. It's not showing you what's actually happening dynamically in the moments in between and how that tissue was moving, how all those pieces are communicating, which is such an incredibly dynamic and beautiful orchestra. And so often when we're learning about the body or going to professionals to Uh, learn more about our body and get help to better connect with our bodies it is just this tiny little dot in the middle of this huge painting and we don't see the rest of the colors the patterns and so we can't begin to understand the full scope of what's actually going on not seeing the forest for the trees or whatever that saying is yeah yeah yeah. I, i i have so many things that i could share it's really hard for me to decide i think um i think this idea that um that movement ideally is around joy and around fun and around play and especially around novelty. I'm mm-hmm. thinking of a case right now that um, this person came in with numerous medical diagnoses, everything from pain to autoimmune to, you know, um, nervous system, scary diagnoses that he'd accumulated over the course of time. Mm. And of course there has to be a medical rule out with someone that knows this model to be able to look at all those tests and say, okay, I see all the tests. I see the landscape of all the things you've had done, but these are all normal findings and your symptoms are not caused by those things. Mm. I'm, I'm being abstract on purpose cause I don't want to share too much information about this case, but, um, part of this person's process was letting go of a lot of the structure that they used to have around exercise and surprising themselves by moving in ways that their brain didn't recognize. Mm. And there was everything from like throwing a baseball again, right? Like who throws a baseball, Mm -hmm. you know, to throwing a Frisbee to, to dancing is one of my favorites Mm because the brain doesn't recognize that as dangerous Mm because it's novel and it's new and it's fresh. Mm -hmm. And he, he, 
he continued to build a case for safety by surprising himself over and over and over again. And he would come back in and say, I can't believe I just did that. Mm. And I joke and I say, yeah, you know, my, my treatment room, it's magic. Like this room is, has like a magical quality. And you know, like when you're running on my street, like this street is really special. <laughs> and I'm like kind of being sarcastic, right? Like this, this street has magical powers that allow you to run, but you know, you're not gonna be able to do it anywhere else. <laughs> And so, Here's the vortex. You <laughs> enter the vortex all as well. Yeah, and so he he over time has has been able to convince his brain that um, noticing this inconsistency and surprising himself that he can he can do things that he didn't think he could do and and I could tell him this all day right mm-hmm. like I know this mm-hmm. but it doesn't matter what I think mm-hmm. what matters is his experience yeah and so. Um, I think that that's the, that's the thing for movement professionals. If you can give people uh, a novel, joyful, unique experience that's um, playful, that's not wrapped up in fear or rules, mm. um, it's going to be more fun for your clients, and it's going to be way more fun for you as a clinician. Mm-hmm. It's my favorite way to prevent burnout. Mm-hmm. For sure. And just even like for every person who isn't a movement professional listening, right? Like the key is novelty and the key is fun and play. And I think movement fundamentally is at its most potent when we're using it as a vehicle for play. Yes, absolutely. Mm. So much to share. We could talk about this all day. I mean, yeah, I feel like I already want to schedule three more episodes, so we might have to do that. <laughs> let's do a follow-up and let's zoom in or zoom out or whatever you want to do. But again, Charlie, this has been such a treat, and I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for coming on here with us and for sharing the multitude of your experience, your knowledge, and your wisdom. Thank you, Marie. I appreciate your insights, and this dialogue back and forth is is where the magic happens, you know? like. It's just, it's such a rich conversation. So thank you for making the space for it. Yeah, and thank you for attending. Thank you for tuning in with us today. You can find contact information and all references made during the show in the show notes. If you enjoyed the episode, don't forget to subscribe, leave a review, and spread the love by sharing with family and friends. If you want to learn more or would like additional support in your movement relationship, head to our website at evolna.com. Be gentle, be generous, and be good to yourself. And have a beautiful day.